Hello and welcome to Shelf Absorbed. We are back. We've been gone for a while. My name is Ben Wheeler. And I'm Sarah Guignoma. And we are going to be talking to you about uh, some of our favourite movies and films that have come out recently. Uh, my my pick started off as being inspired a little bit by the Oscars and the, and the Golden Globes. There's a few pretty good movies coming out. Uh, I still have one of those, Promising Young Woman. Uh, how about your picks? I have an absolute stellar lineup of three brilliant books I've read recently. Um, one being The Midnight Library, which I by Matt Haig, which is his new book, which I actually stayed up past midnight to read. Um, the other being An Ordinary Wonder by Bookie Papillon, which is due out next week. And um, the last one I'm going to be discussing today is Luster by Revin Lalani, uh, which is a brilliant debut novel. Um, and it's, it's just been um, long listed for the Women's Prize. And I cannot wait to talk about it. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. As as ever, I haven't heard of or read those books. Absolutely cutting edge material here. One of them hasn't even been released yet, right? That's coming out next week. Bam. Biggity bam. Uh, I'll be talking after Promising Young Woman. I'll be talking about the two films from the Steve McQueen anthology Small Axe, which are Mangrove and Lover's Rock, my two favourite. And I know that you'll be weighing in there a little bit, especially on Lover's Rock, because we've talked about this a lot before. And then finally, I want to talk about a little bit of a wild card, a horror film that just came out called Wrong Turn, uh, which is a remake of an old franchise, which I found thoroughly interesting. And the, the people that I went to see it with at the cinema uh, found it. We had an interesting difference of opinion, which I'll elaborate on later. Shall we get on with your first book? Yeah, why not? Um, so, The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Oh, my. Wow. Um, I stayed up, like I said, past midnight um, to finish reading this. Matt Haig, is, as you all know or don't know, is an absolutely established author. Um, and this book has basically, I think it's still num it's number one in all the book charts um, in the UK um, and also in America. It's, you know, I don't usually go with the hype, but this one is has got has got all the hype and should be hyped up as much as it can. It's basically about a girl called Nora, whose parents have died. Um, her brother, Joe, is not speaking to her just because she's sort of decided to leave the, the, the band that they were in called The Labyrinth. Um, and she's just basically lost her will to live. She's also, um, just to add even more sort of, to her life she's basically uh, walked out of a marriage or a wedding two days before the actual wedding so it's life's just pretty much crap for poor Nora Nora um, oh that's it and then she gets a knock on the door on the night that um, she's decided to do what she's about to do which I'm going to tell you um, and the guy has basically picked up her cat um, off the off the ground outside and it's dead so poor, poor Nora. I mean, Nora has just basically lost the will to live. And so she decides to take some pills um, to basically end her life. Um, OK, it's all right. This all gets picked up. This, we're going to pick this up. Um, and so she, she takes some pills and she wakes up thinking that she'll be on the other side. But she's not. She's in the in-between world. And there to meet her is a lady called Mrs. Elm. Mrs. Elm was her library teacher who um, she used to play chess with at school. 
And actually, on the day that her father died, it was Mrs. Elm that basically delivered the news during their chest board. So there's, you know, there's obviously, that's the relationship, the rapport. So she says to Mrs. Elm, well, where am I? I mean, I wanted to die. I mean, this is not, this is not what I, what I had sort of envisaged. And Mrs. Elm's like, well, this is the in-between world. And she's like, well, what do you mean this is in-between world? Well, this is the bit where you guys basically get to decide or go back to relive those points in your life where you may have regretted bits and you can get to sort of not change, but sort of go back into that life and relive it. Um, and so Nora's like, well, no, I, I, I just want to die. Well, anyway, cut story short, this library, the midnight library, is where there are just endless, endless, endless shelves that just completely start rotating and moving. Where Nora can choose, she can pick up a book. Well, there's a book of regrets, to first off, which is this really heavy book where there's just contains all these regrets um, of Nora, so all throughout her life, up until that point when she's decided to take the pills. And so it's up to Nora to basically pick up this book and go for She starts going through this book of regrets and it's just so heavy and she's just like, oh, this is so depressing. So Mrs. Elm's like, okay, well, let's just deal with that. Why don't we start, why don't you pinpoint points in your life where you feel you could go back and relive? And so back in the day, there's various points, we're not going to dwell in, but it's, you know, um, Nora's father was like really, like really keen for her to be this Olympic swimmer. She could have been an Olympic swimmer. She could have been this fa in this famous band called The Labyrinth with her brother. Um, she could have been a glossologist. Um, there were various points in her life that she could go back. And she could also back, go back and live with Dan, the, the guy that she's dumped. So the book is about Nora basically going back to these various points. And at whatever point when she goes back into this life, um, she can decide at any point that she's like, no, actually, I'm not. I, I actually, I don't. I don't like this life. Can I go back? Now, this book is incredible, and I've loved it, and I reckon this is why it's so popular. Is that because we can all kind of relate to it in so many ways? Um, Matt Haig is a genius. I mean, he's just, this is not the only book he's written about depression. I mean, I think he's very been very open about his own sort of depression and anxiety. And I'm going to read you a few quotes and then we kind of kind of go back. And if you've got some questions, we can go through that. Um, there's a point where she's talking with Mrs. Elm. And this is called Towards the End of the Book. It's about 75% in on my Kindle. She goes, she realised that she hadn't tried to end her life because she was miserable, but because she'd managed to convince herself that there was no way out of her misery. That, she supposed, was the basis of depression, as well as the difference between fear and despair. There's all these absolute blinding points in this book, um, Ben, where you're like, wow. Because we've all sort of like had moments where we're like, oh, I wish I wish I could have been a painter. Um, I wish I hadn't studied development. Um, I wish I could have been a musician. I mean, have you got points in your life where you've, you've got regrets? Well, yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, I, I don't. I, I well, I try not to look at them as regrets. I try and have a have a more healthy and balanced kind of uh, retrospective philosophy on my life, and I and I think that they're all kind of uh, important points. So I, I'm fascinated by this concept for a start because there are certainly parts of my life that I want to go back and relive, and I'd enjoy that. I don't know if I'd want to change anything. So this idea of regret is uh, is an interesting counterpoint to that but i like the idea of going back and reliving a little bit like a greatest hits <laughs> oh yeah no absolutely and like you know there's you know there's a point where nora goes back and she's like this famous lead singer of this band and you know she's like in sao paulo and she's 
She's playing to like thousands and she's got a million followers. And you'd think that, you know, she's, you know, there's moments where she's like, wow, I'm really loving this. And she's she's apparently going out with this Ryan Bailey guy. But actually, I mean, she, you know, she doesn't stay long there because she obviously goes back to the Midnight Library. But actually, but towards the end, um, there is a part where she, 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 she goes back into this life where the guy um, who delivered her dead cat, Ash, who runs and he's um, he's a surgeon. She's going back to this life and she's actually married to Ash and they've got this beautiful little girl called Molly. And what starts to happen is that Nora begins to basically feel the emotion of love. And I'm going to read you this extract. And, um, and it goes something like this. So you could eat in the finest restaurants. You could partake in every sensual pleasure. You could sing on stage in Sao Paulo to 20,000 people. You could soak up whole thunderstorms of applause. You could travel to the ends of the earth. You could be followed by millions on the internet. You could win Olympic medals. But this was all meaningless without love. Um, and, you know, Nora, doesn't feel, Nora starts to feel like, well, actually, maybe I really want this life. This is where I feel actually most at home. But what happens is, and yeah, absolute spoilers going on here today. Um, she doesn't get to live that life, but she gets to go back to the Midnight Library and decide, well, we're from here. This book is phenomenal. Believe the hype. I absolutely loved every single word. I've got it on my Kindle. I'm going to order it because I think everyone should have this on their shelf. Matt Haig is an absolute genius, and I'm hoping he's hearing this because I'd love to sit down and have a chat with him, not just with this book, but on the whole sort of, his whole way of thinking, like obviously he drops in lots of sort of like, he's big on philosophy, um, Theroux's thrown in there lots. Um, there's lots of obviously psychology. Like I'm, I'm not one to regret things in my life that, you know, I wish I could have done that. I'm like you, um, Ben, in that it's like, well, I don't want to regret, but if I can go back and change a few things, I, I would. Because who I am today and sitting uh, right now, I would I wouldn't be me if I hadn't gone through all the things I would have gone through. I have gone through. So yeah, this book is mind blowingly fantastic, and go out and buy it. Sounds incredible, man. I think I definitely want to read that one. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. This 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 idea of looking back. I was just thinking about it even more just after you asked me the first time, uh, and I think uh, speaking. Uh, Again, as someone who sort of suffers from anxiety, I really like looking back on things. Yeah. If I was ever to go back to some of my like best moments, my greatest hits, I probably wouldn't be enjoying them at the time. You know, I'd probably be like forcing myself to get through them, like a real push. Because uh, I used to play in a band and I used to be terrified. I used to DJ a lot and I used to be terrified and I used to be a lecturer and I used to be terrified of all these things. Yeah, well, like, um, Nora, like you know, like Nora, I mean, Nora suffers the most heinous sort of panic attacks, which is why she basically quits the band, the Labyrinth, and so, and then, you know, starts this awful sort of relationship with her brother because it's like, you know, after the parents die, especially, um, like both parents as well, um, you know, he's just like, you left the band. We could have been so famous. And he just, you know, for him, it was about fame. And for Nora, it's just like she had this crippling um, anxiety. Um, but I just, I loved it. And, you know, it reminded me so much about, I do remember those books we used to read when we were younger where it's like you can change the endings. You start and it's up to you. You can change a different ending. This is what the Midnight Library reminded me of. And it just, I loved it. Hence why I've got massive bags in my eyes right now, which is great that no one can see it apart from you. But yeah, I'm I stay up literally till 3 a.m. to read it because I, I, I like zero regrets. Awesome.
yeah i think they were called choose your own adventure books yeah. right they were really cool i used so to love cool. them uh, i used to read them all the time so cool um yeah that also reminds me a little bit that film of a film by a japanese director called coriada but i forget the name of it uh as ever but it's it's uh, like a waiting room uh like an in-between place a similar kind of concept but they have to pick one memory to oh, wow. relive for the rest of their mm. for, of their eternity, so maybe a little more little more bleak. Uh, but yeah, I'll, I'll I'll try and remember the name of that for later in the uh, in t- in the uh, podcast. Oh yeah, the other sorry, just quickly, just before we move on to your first film, um, the other concept that I loved was um, the fact that we can live these parallel universes. Uh-huh. That comes up a lot. Yeah, now we're talking. Now well, we like, I've been I've been uh, <laughs> I'm starting a science fiction book club here. Not sure if that's your kind of thing, um, but I've been brushing up on a bit of Philip K. Dick. I almost said brushing up on a bit of Dick then, but that could have been misconstrued. Um, so, uh, yeah, on to my first film choice. And it's uh, it's been uh, nominated for the Golden Globes and it was uh, is now nominated for the Oscars. Um, and I, I, I hope it's going to do well. There's there's some some real good representation in the Oscars for, for female directors. Um, this and Nomadland are in there. Um, Nomadland I haven't seen yet, so which is it's proved kind of tricky to get hold of here. Uh, so I'm going to look at um, Emerald Fennel's Promising Young Woman, uh, which is a fascinating, uh, visceral piece of film. Uh, I went to see it again with, with, with a crowd of people who had mixed responses. This is an interesting kind of thing that keeps happening to me recently. I came out feeling like I'd been... Uh, winded punched in the stomach or something it was it was a really really powerful experience for me um i i think for for a number of reasons um so i probably most people know it stars um kerry mulligan as cassie who is um uh we know from the beginning of the film out on some sort of uh, revenge mission uh, to shame men who are who get uh, who sexually assault women while they're drunk, right? Pretends that they're going to look after them, take them back to their place. So she goes to bars and clubs and pretends to be really drunk uh, when she isn't. And when they get her home and try to do stuff to her, she snaps out of it. And she she gives them a, a damn good shaming and a bit of a bullying. That's like the Michaela Cole. Yeah, yeah, uh, I I may destroy you. Yeah. Yes, definitely. The and I want I, I want to talk about that but another time because I have to see that first and I've oh. been I heard an interview with her. If anyone uh, I don't know, should we be uh, plugging other people's podcasts? Louis Theroux's Grounded, the Michaela Cole one is awesome. Um <laughs> maybe we could get hold of her as a guest star. She sounds really cool. um yes so i've had a few spoilers of that already because they talked about it a lot but so i I know pretty much what it's about but i really want to see it it's incredible she is incredible she is yeah yeah um so um that's that that's the 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 central conceit of the film Uh, however um it is it is not it's kind of allies itself with a rape revenge genre which i i very much am a fan of but that genre more often plays out in very explicitly violent ways there's a whole bunch of movies like kind of exploitative violent movies about rape revenge uh that fit broadly into the kind of maybe a bit into the slasher 
uh, genre. Um, quite gory. There's I Spit on Your Grave, very famous one that got remade a few years ago. It's all pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to pop out of it. Don't worry, as you did. Um, uh, Ms. 45. There's another recent one called MFA. These films are very are quite explicitly violent, as I said. And what I really like about this film is it isn't. It isn't violent, and it's but it is unsettling because it runs a parallel narrative while Cassie is running her campaign to um, hold up a sort of grotesque mirror to to this male behaviour, this toxic toxic masculinity. Um, she meets a really really nice guy uh, called Ryan, played by Bo Burnham, really really well, um, and they start like a little rom commy relationship. So there's a very sort of almost unnerving and unsettling mix of genres here: um, a rape revenge and, and a rom com. And I thought it played out exceptionally well. It it it, it makes you a little uncomfortable, but um, and I'm sure it would it, it's uh, uncomfortable viewing for victims or survivors. You know, it was uncomfortable viewing for me for a different reason. Just looking at all this kind of toxic masculinity and being a boy, you know, uh, a man, should I say. Um, 43 now. really shouldn't be referring to myself as a boy. Sign of my arrested development. Um, but yeah, I found it. I found it absolutely fascinating, and, and the way that the the narrative progresses, I really don't want to talk too much about that. Um, but I think it's an interesting film. I think it's an important film, like the book that you just suggested. It's, it's received a lot of hype. It's got Oscar buzz. There have been some critics that that uh, kind of. Um, say that it scratches the surface without really going deep enough. Uh, but I don't think that was the aim of the film. I think the aim of the film is to get these uh, these ideas out there, get these ideas up on the big screen in the wake of things like Me Too, in the wake of Harvey Weinstein and, you know, the... the the um, inequality and the violence uh, that goes on within Hollywood and within corporate structures more generally. Um, I, I think it's an important film for, for, for that reason. Yeah. You've heard of it? No, I haven't. I, was, I, I love Carrie Mulligan. I've always admired her. Um, and more so um, just because she's a single mum like me. Um, so, you know, Lizzo Matilda lost her father, just like my, you know, my son's lost her. So I've, I, and I love her fashion as well. So I sort of admire her from the sidelines for completely different reasons. I also think she's a fantastic actress. Films that she's chosen, she's very picky about the chooses, the films that she chooses, and I like that. Mm. She just doesn't go for like the big blockbuster kind of mundane sort of, yeah, let's just fill seats. She's very particular. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'd be interesting to see, to watch this movie. It's really a shame that we can't, get a lot of these movies here in, in Fiji. I really would urge you to watch uh, Michaela Cole's um, uh, BBC series uh, because it's just, I mean, I smashed it in like one sitting. Mm. She, she, I mean, you know, she, she only, she, not only did she write it, I mean, she directed it as well. Yeah, yeah, stars in it and uh, yeah. it's all based on her own experiences. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, so like I say, back again. Back at you. I'll recommend the uh, the the grounded interview that she yeah, did no, with Louis Theroux. Yeah, no, I'll definitely Theroux. go check that out. Um, Carrie Mulligan is fantastic, though. Like you say, there's there was a very interesting thing in the press, which kind of proves like how crazy that sexism is. That said that. Um, uh, she, one, this journalist kind of uh, suggested that she wasn't really hot enough to play this role, which is kind of crazy for all sorts of reasons, man. You know, uh, and and highlights exactly the sort of 
problems that that so many of these really cool films at the moment are are, are raising into yeah, the public. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, the, well, yeah, and I think it goes beyond that. I just think we're in a at this current time. I mean, we're not going to go. That's you know, today's not about going into what you know all the all the A's and the B's and the C's that are going on in the world right now to do with racism, sexism. But it's there's a lot being flushed out right now, and I think it's great. I think it's brilliant that these conversations are being had um you know whether or not you know social media and the news and you know people rising up being demonstrating it's it's great because i think you know a change had to come and i feel that it's it's coming and i'm really excited about it all i think we're definitely on the cusp yeah it's it's troubled troubled times but um I think we went, I mentioned this before. From from these troubled times, often we forge kind of new new ideologies, right, and new ways of of looking at the world and dealing with the world, and and importantly for our discussions, representing the world in literature and film. Yeah. What's your next book, man? Speaking of um, um, representation, um, my next book is by um, a gorgeous author. Bookie Papillon, and it's called An Ordinary Wonder. Um, I, I, I was, I was luckily gifted this book by Dialogue Books. It's out next week. An Ordinary Wonder, a stunning debut. Um, it's a story about the life of a Nigerian twin girl called Otto, who is forced to hide her intersex identity. So she's so just to reiterate. So Otto is a twin with her sister Wura, um, and. But Otto is recognised as a boy just because she's born with both parts. Um, but not, I mean, the, the, the male part's not fully grown. It's just a, a bit. Um, and, but the female part is fully grown. And what happens is that as she as she gets older, I mean, she doesn't, there's certain, so she'll start to sort of grow boobs. Mm-hmm. Um, but she won't necessarily start to menstruate. But she also she has the she has she's attracted to men, but because of the society um, and the religion that she's born into, it's very it's it's just it's such a harsh reality. I mean, like so from birth, um, she she recognizes herself as, as as a girl, and she's desperate to wear what her sister Wura is wearing. She wants the pink dresses, she wants the necklaces, and when it's found out that she's she's caught by her mother once her father just goes berserk and actually deserts the family and starts a new whole new family with another woman which completely sends the mum into an absolute rage because she's in completely in love with this man not because he's rich not just because of fact he's rich and really powerful in nigeria but because she's just completely in love with him and there begins this journey for for like for otto where she's on a daily basis basically verbally and physically abused by her mother and it's awful the daily abuse her sister Wura tries to protect her as much as she can it gets to the point though that also is like she's very she's very intelligent and she figures out well actually you know if i do really well i could go to this international school this boarding school and be away from the mother i'd be away from that and actually be free and so she does she basically convinces her mother um to go to this boarding school where she she meets other students. Um, at the, it's a boys' boarding school, by the way. And she ends up falling in love with her her roommate, Darren. Darren doesn't know about Otto being a boy. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just mind-blowing in, on so many levels. 
Um, and interwoven with this story is this kind of sort of Nigerian sort of mythology, sort of folktale. So in, in her dreams, Otto has this gorgeous um, kind of mermaid fish sort of character called Yemeni who comes and basically, you know, is basically her protector and reassures her that she's going to be okay. And there are some, I mean, I don't want to give away too much, but I end up giving away too much because I talk too much. <laughs> and I, because I love this book. Um, and you, so you've got this beautiful, these beautiful sort of fables, but just interwoven into this everyday story. And gosh, I mean, from the get go, you're just, you're siding on with Otto and you're like, well, how, you know, she's, she's you know, she wants, she wants to, um, she wants to be a girl. And, you know, there's one incident where she's attacked at school. And there's this um, there's this expat do doctor who basically gets to see her, see where where how how and why she's different, and it's and you know but treats Otto very like very normal, and Otto's basically taken back because you know all her life she's been told she's basically like a freak of nature, um, and I'm getting quite emotional because it's you know I'm sort of recalling parts of the book where you're just like God you're like I really you know, you really feel for Otto and you're thinking this has got to all sort of end. How is this all going to end for her? And the doctor starts to explain that, well, if you leave and, you know, out in countries like America, you can actually be fixed. You can have these operations. And this just blows Otto's mind. And so that's basically where she starts the head. And there's this one teacher called Mr. D who becomes this father figure for her. And, you know, when her parents basically oust her out of her house and Otto ends up moving Mr. D. And Mr. D ends up being one one of many saviors for her. And that's and that's where I'm gonna stop on that story because otherwise it's like no one's gonna go out and buy Bookie's Bookie's book. But please go out and buy Bookie's book. It is phenomenal. And I'm pretty much gonna put it out there as being my first book of twenty twenty one of up in my in my book of faves fame. Does that make sense? In my book of fame fame? Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame faves. Book of faves. Hall of Fame, Fame faves for 2021. There you go. That's a mouthpiece. Yeah. Um, it's brilliant. And also, I'm I'm going to be interviewing Bookie next month. And I'm so excited. Woo woo. woo that sounds woo. exciting, man. Yeah. Oh, I'd be really, uh, be really interested to hear that, man. Yeah, no, it's and great. And the book sounds incredible. It's sounds incredible. Sort of uh, tra traumatic, exploring that trauma, right? I mean, Absolutely. you're you getting kind of emotional well, when there, you have, as you like, said. Well, when you have like the sense of sex, and so, you know, you, and it's, you're hearing a lot more and more of these stories where people, uh, you know, it's like, no, I, I, I feel 100, I've, I'm, I'm a born a, a man or I'm born a woman, but I feel 100% the opposite sex. Um, and, you know, when it gets to your sort of, your hormones start reaching out and you, that's, yeah, it's just, yeah. It's it's a mind blower, and so there you go. I've got the ordinary wonder, and the midnight library. Two books already on my shelf of books, fave books of fame. Fave. I can't even say it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> we know what you mean. Yeah. But they're two excellent books that you have excellent read recently, books. and everyone else should uh, give them a go. Go go go. What's your what's your next film? Right, so next film requires like about thirty seconds of uh, introduction. How I came to choose this one, uh, I was going to do the Trial of the Chicago Seven, 
which is another Oscar-nominated, Golden Globes-nominated movie from Aaron Sorkin about the trial of the Chicago 7, obviously, who were um, tried for inciting riot protests at the 1968 Democratic Convention. Um, It's a fascinating movie. It's really good. Aaron Sorkin can write really good dialogue. um, And it's a great courtroom drama. However... However, uh, a, a film came out last year, um, in, in the last few months of last year, as part of the Small Axe Anthology directed by Steve McQueen called Mangrove, that I think for a bunch of reasons is a better, more interesting film, and, and I kind of want to talk about that one. Uh, so Mangrove is about the Mangrove Nine, um, who were part of a protest uh, in in London, in Notting Hill, in uh, 1970, and I think the trial goes on from 1970 to 1971, uh, and the, the, the circumstances are remarkably similar. Uh, they're protesting racism, uh, they are a group of West Indian immigrants, and, and the Small Axe Anthology looks at the experiences of West Indian immigrants from the 1960s to the 1980s, um, and, and so it's fascinating, uh, just as a sort of historical document, I I think, um, especially in that area, especially when you consider films like the film called Notting Hill, which is uh, one of the whitest films I ever watched 20 minutes of before switching it off in a frustrated rage. Um, <laughs> but this film, uh, this film is is a better film, I think, because it's it has more balance, and and you know this is something that, that that we talk a lot about here, how we kind of balance each other out a little bit. This film is not about the courtroom drama, which the, which the Sorkin film, the Chicago Seven, is absolutely focused on. That film is into the courtroom within the first ten minutes of the movie. This film takes takes a, a, about an hour. You get an hour of the experiences of the of the characters in Notting Hill. Uh, Frank Critchlow, uh, played by Sean Sean Park, uh, yeah Sean Parks, who uh, who created the Mangrove Restaurant in Notting Hill as a place where those West Indian immigrants who suffered from uh, suffered racism and and suffered uh, been ostracised and been rejected access to so many places could have a place where they could relax. Um, a, a place that was communal, a, a place that felt like home. Um, and the film is basically about the 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 way that the, the the place is constantly raided as being a haunt for criminals and prostitutes and drug addicts. It focuses very much on one particularly nasty racist cop uh, who is played ooh, by. Um, uh, uh, Sam Spruill, he's called PC Frank Pulley, and man, oh, he's a nasty piece of work. We have a whole hour of this setup before we get into the courtroom uh, drama, and and I think I don't know. There's 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 a kind of humanity about it. There's a lack of showiness that I think you get from from uh, Aaron Sorkin's material generally. You know. Um, like he's a very interesting writer, you know. Fa- he's famous for the West Wing, and, and I think at the, at the same time as he uh, tries to sort of problematize and write these things that that are sort of quite uh, critical of American institutions, he ends up being quite celebratory of them. There's a feeling at the in at the end of the the trial of the Chicago Seven, like like there's there's been some kind of moral victory in 1968. 
1969, whenever the, the trial concluded. I know it dragged on for a while. And, it, and it's a, a moral victory that's problematic when you just look at the historical nature of the film. You look at, you know, what has happened in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, uh, but also in, in the film itself, in its representation of race, uh, you know, the, the, the almost dismissive way that the, that the black uh, Bobby Searle, uh, the Black Panther's character, who is a member of the Chicago 7, lump, they're all lumped together. Um, but his, uh, his treatment being bound and gagged in court, for example, is given, it happens and then is resolved by joseph gordon levitt in a kind of white savior type moment within like a minute and in fact he was bound and gagged bobby cell for days and days in this courtroom uh, and there is amazing works of art uh, uh, that, that i've seen um back in london when i still got to visit uh, art galleries very regularly man um some amazing amazing works of art uh, representing that so uh, uh, yeah, th- this is this is another film that that I think uh, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about. That's uh, something that you can that can unfold for you. Um, but it's a real like all of uh, Steve McQueen's stuff. It's it's a real uh, visceral, emotional experience. Um, uh, as opposed to the to the more polished, more Oscar Beatty Child uh, of the Chicago Seven. So that's that. And I did want to talk a little bit about Lover's Rock as well, which is the, the, the second film uh, in the Small Axe anthology. Uh, because we kind of had a little moment, right, where we realised we'd both seen this and, and uh, loved it. What did you, what did you t- tell us your oh, thoughts about it first? I adored it. I mean, I think I, um, I adored uh, the, the soundtrack, first off. Um, I adored um, the costumes. I adored the setting. I adored the atmosphere... Um, that Steve McQueen was able to create between the 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 characters in that not much was said, but so much was said at the same time. So there's that scene, as we know, where they're in the main the main room, um, and there's the um, what's the tune? City Games by Janet Kay. There you go. Thank you so much. It's just like you can tell I've been up three a.m. reading a book. I got you. Um, where there's where where there where that's playing and there's just a heap of ganja being smoked, um, and there's just lots of bodies grinding, um, and it's just intense and beautiful and oh my god, I wanted to be in that room in so many ways. I'd love to recreate that house party actually. And you know, like I I heard through the grapevine through some friends actually who 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 sort of worked on 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 that particular episode that actually what happened was uh, they sort of stopped, the camera stopped rolling. And what they did was basically just let the the actors basically just run with it and just sing a cappella. So that scene when it sort of, you know, the music stops and they just keep going for what seems like forever was literally like unplanned. And that just adds even more amazingness to this incredible, incredible story. And embarrassingly, it's the only one I've watched um, just because I don't know, I find it really hard to sit down and concentrate to watch um, to watch a series, and so I do need to kind of really um, get my get my get my bum on a sofa and watch the rest. Because I, I I know that John Boyega also was in the one you just mentioned. No, no, he's in a later one. He's in the later yeah, one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's right, a really sorry. interesting one. Which he actually just won an award for, didn't he? Yeah, Global uh, Golden, uh, Supporting Golden Global Globe. Gold. Yeah, yeah that's correct. But yeah, I loved Lovers Rock. 
And I love the scene because it obviously reminds me of my mum, where there's the ladies basically uh, dolling out lots of rice and peas. Um, <laughs> and because I could just totally see my mum doing that. Um, brilliant. Steve McQueen is just fantastic. Um, and so if you've not watched it, please go ahead. And also, and also the soundtrack, like it's not just silly games. There's just, um, there's Bob Marley's son. It's got a track that's like slow down. Yeah, it's it's just, it's amazing. But again, I'd love to recreate that scene on so many levels. Yeah, it, it was, it's fantastic, man. Uh, like, so it's, it's kind of a 1980, uh, you know, West London blues party, same, same kind of immigrant crowd same kind of vibe you know being uh, being turned away from clubs you know uh, they create their own yeah um and there's a there's a great quote i found um i'm not sure i don't think i wrote it down but it's something about uh this is what happened oh no here it is the rest of, the rest of small acts features racist cops racist bosses racist courts mm. lovers rock shows what happens when white people aren't looking uh, the rapture of black joy exp experienced privately and that is a fantastic and amazing thing about it and, and it's wonderfully insightful on that level but it also taps into a universality I think you know like there's I've been in I've I've been in these spaces I've been in kind of squat parties and free parties and raves you know and everyone's kind of drinking and smoking and losing themselves in these moments and that moment of rapture that you described is one of my one of my favorites if not it's it's the moment it's the scene i think of 2020 um which was a, a year that needed that kind of scene i guess Absolutely. so it's it's a real beautiful representation of uh of a night um uh and a night at a very specific place and time really really evocative like like nothing else almost i've even experienced um so absolutely that is uh those are my second and third recommendations for you at least those two out of the small acts anthology but um uh mangrove is like two hours long lovers rock is just over an hour the rest of them are about an hour so you know it, it it's uh it's um it's a doable thing get yourself a weekend where you where you want to experience something like this and then experience it i'm gonna do that So for my final book rec um, for this poddy, I have got The Illustrious Luster by Raven Lalani, which has just been longlisted for the Women's Prize. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Um, again, another book that I was sent last, ye last year um, as a proof, and it blew my mind. It blew my mind, my head, everything off reading it. It is just in incredible another debut i have to say there are these debuts there are these writers coming out i mean i'd love to write a book one day but i'm feeling really intimidated at the thought that i'm going to be up against these incredible writers because like the talent um at the moment is just insane um i'm loving it though because it's just like there's so many ideas out there but luster is just wow it's basically, you've got the character Eddie, who's an African-American young girl, and she's working in, like, an, as, like, basically admin, bodmin, um, in an all-white office. Um, and she's basically sleeping around. She is just doing her thing. Um, 
and uh, Reverend Lalani is not shy on details as well, just as a kind of, yeah, so you're looking for a sort of kind of soft, uh, maybe medium porn. This this is your book. Um, you've got sexual, racial, everything politics in this. You've got the fetishism of black women. So yeah, so Eddie basically ends up sleeping with her boss and that just kind of gets her into all sorts of trouble. Um, and you know, fast forward and she basically goes, ends up going on a date with a guy called Eric, who's married, white, middle-aged guy to a lady called Rebecca. And let me just backtrack a little bit on this one. So Eddie, Eddie, Eddie wants to paint. She's, she should be painting. She should have been a painter. Um, but it's just not gone into that. So, you know, we were talking about the Midnight Library about, you know, coulda, shoulda, woulda, regret kind of thing. Mm. Eddie should have been a painter. So she wants to go back in time. I mean, I think she would have money dicked, dicked, ducked into that life and been a painter. God, there's all sorts going on this morning. Anyway, so Eric meets, Eddie meets Eric um, and he's, you know, like white suburban, married to, married to Rebecca and they've got a black adopted daughter called Akila. So you kind of see where I'm going on this one. Mm. Live in the burbs and they've basically got an open marriage going on. Eric is also prone to basically hitting um, Eddie. Yes, this happens a number of times in this book, which, yeah, yeah. But this is not the book club to discuss this. I'm just talking about this book and what made me kind of like, wow, because there are just so many wow moments. There's that moment. There's there's Eddie's sort of basically sleeping around the office. There's the fetishism of black women. Um, and then there's the politics around having an open marriage. Like, how do you even go with that? Um, and I'm just going to read you an extract from this book um, just to kind of give you a context of what, what kind of what's going on. So the scene is basically uh, Eric has gone away for work and Eddie has moved in with his into her into Eddie's family home. So Eddie is now with Rebecca and Akila. But 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 Eric doesn't know that Eddie is, is living there. So it's all going to be a bit of a shock. But anyway, let's go with this. After another measure in corpse, I follow Rebecca into the kitchen and watch her portion ingredients. She pushes, a, she, she pushes a clove of garlic in front of me and offers me a knife, blade first. When I take the knife, a thought comes to me fully rendered, complete with texture and aftermath. I could, in the right state of mind, murder her and carry on with my life. Really, it would be her fault for inviting a stranger into her house and providing the knife. Her composure is infuriating. I start to tell her that when I fuck her husband, I'm the one who does the fucking. But the impulse passes and I spoon the garlic into the oil. The sirloin, the sirloin follows and as the potatoes are coming out of the oven, one of Rebecca's big oven mitts slips off and onto the floor. She sucks the burnt finger and then forgets about it to take a bite of the steak. She offers me her fork and I follow suit. The meat, bloody and tough. It is the best thing I've eaten in weeks. I close my eyes. When I open them, she's smiling. So, how long have you known Pradeep? I say, and she tilts her head. I don't know, a few years? He's a good kid, she says. Good kid, a little gooier than the rest of the words. You like him? He's young. He hasn't been disappointed yet. Sometimes I forget what that looks like. You know, optimism, optimism, she says. And I want to ask her how old he is, but I refrain. Why do you ask? It just seemed like he was being kind of hard on her. 
Akila. So, sorry, Pradeep is the, the tutor. Right. She seemed, she needs a firm hand, she says, that she stopped eating and stopped smiling. It wasn't like that. The way he was talking to her, it felt kind of like specific, I say. And there is no fluffy alternative word for what I'm about to convey. No way to effectively explain violations that are not overt. It is a rhetorical hellscape, a casual reduction so frequent it is mundane, almost too mundane for the deployment of the R world, as with a certain sect of good white person with the, ex- the, the accusation over, uh, overshadows the act of racism. I should yell because I'm sure Rebecca will receive it in the uppercase regardless. And already I feel her seizing on the drama of its implication. Even though racism is often so mundane, it leaves your head spinning. The hand of the ordinary in your slow psychic death, so sly and absurd, you begin to distrust your own eyes. So it has taken a long time for me to get here to say, yes, this is what happened. It happened just like that. But when Rebecca turns and scrapes the rest of her food off the plate and into the trash, I feel like a jerk. She looks at me. Any goodwill that existed between us lost. Wow. Yeah. That uh, sounds like a really intriguing book with that kind of uh, high-level, interesting uh, kind of uh, dialogue and prose mixed with soft to medium <laughs> pornography. Yeah, absolutely. And like what Raven what Lalani does Raven Lalani does very well is like the dialogue between, for example, I loved the dialogue because you know, Rebecca is very much aware that um Eddie is fucking her husband. And so the fact that Rebecca is now okay with well she's not okay she's absolutely not okay with eddie living under the same roof of roof of her and there is a scene actually where um i mean you know eddie and eric you know do have sex in the in the house but it's a case of like yeah there's just so much going on and you know like the tension it's there's just such a build-up but it's also like an on like there's just known truths amongst this open marriages so i mean each their own if you're into that that's fine but you're just given a real insight into how this could maybe work or not work. And then you've got Akila, who you then you also think like, well, has Rebecca brought um, Eddie into this mix because she's got this black adoptive daughter who's got like no, well, no one knows how to do her hair as a first off. And so does she see Eddie as someone who's going to be this role model for Akila? But then Akila also knows that Rebecca, that, that her father, her adopted father is also, oh, it's just, it's, it's, it's crazy. But that's what I love. It's crazy. It's out there. We don't have enough books like this. And it's bam, go out, buy it if you've not. Chaotic. Sounds kind of chaotic. I love chaotic. Yeah, I absolutely love chaos too. It's very much the defining <laughs> characteristic of much of my life, I think. And that kind of intensity and that kind of chaos kind of leads me on to my, my last selection also, which is a bit of a wild card. I wanted, I, well, I, I was thinking of doing Mank, which looks like it's going to win all the Oscars um, because it's a, a film about Hollywood and it's directed by David Fincher and it's black and white and it's starring Gary Oldman. But oh my God, you know, you couldn't hear about that and read about that just about anywhere else over the next couple of weeks and months. So I'm going to choose a film uh, which came out uh, very recently uh, on at the cinema and on streaming services called Wrong Turn. 
Wrong Turn. Uh, it's You might remember the Wrong Turn movies. They were a franchise in the early 21st century in the noughties in which gangs of hapless teenagers, and this is a trope you might recognise from like every horror film ever or most horror films uh, gangs of hapless tri- teenagers wander into the appalachian mountains and crazy mountain folk uh, kidnap kill and eat them that was the basic um narrative structure of the first wrong turn which i think came out in 2004 written by alan b McElroy, uh who actually re- rewrote this rewrote it for this this kind of adaptation so it birthed spawned whichever word you want to use a franchise of three or four or five other wrong turns before this reset and this reset for me is is fascinating it is brutal it is chaotic uh it sustains a level of anxiety from the the end of the first act that that just kind of ramps up and up and up and up which is something i very much enjoy uh despite you know or, or perhaps because of suffering from anxiety on occasion i like having my amygdala tickled my fear centers in a controlled way that's probably it so it's excellently made in in that respect but it also is very interesting in that it kind of pits three groups of people against each other you have your hapless teens who are all incredibly woke incredibly kind of middle class you've got um, an interracial heterosexual couple and an interracial homosexual couple so it's ticking all the boxes there but but it it, brilliantly it it kind of problematizes this group there are some members of this group that have kind of some problematic ideas about the world uh and are there's a there's an arrogance of course that you know um that that stops you from from buying into this group the the other group is the the well there's two other groups it's not as clear-cut as those original ones before we meet the mountain folk we meet the rednecks who live in the appalachian village at the foot of the mountains and there's the basic kind of broadly speaking democrat republican um adversarial antagonistic encounter uh between these two groups before they go into the mountain then they go into the mountain and they meet this group of mountain people they're called the the foundation that's this film is called wrong turn foundation and they have retreated from society uh long 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 time ago and started this community this like utopia in the mountains uh, within which they never they never venture down uh, and the people at the foot of the mountains never venture up you know so so uh what this group represents seems to represent to me is uh as i said there's a broad kind of left right wing thing going on what this group seems to represent to me is ext- more extremist groups that work in America at the moment. So there's definitely kind of a QAnon type of feel to it, but also the the kind of extremism of 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 groups like Antifa as well, I guess, because you know the left and right both have their uh, idiots and extremists. And this one of the kind of basic uh, ideologies that these mountain that the foundation have is is a kind of fairly socialist, you know, each according to their needs, each according to their abilities type deal going on. But they also have like a really really broad brutal system of justice this is a horror film don't don't forget and so there is a lot of violence but for me that's an interesting representation of contemporary american society at the moment too there's a lot of violence right now and there has always been a lot of violence this is not something that is 
exclusive to America, of course. But as an American film, you know, that's how the social commentary roles i think there is something very interesting that i think in in terms of the violence is often depicted off screen so these violent things happen and almost like we're flinching we don't see them we see the before and after but not the the actual act itself which also fascinated me as well because i think that's an interesting representation of contemporary violence and media how we get the build-up and we get the aftermath even if we haven't been at an event or, or, or seen a thing happen ourselves so anyway it's this really interesting dynamic and i thought it was a really really interesting film and possibly one of the most brilliantly insightful social commentary horror slasher revisionist of its own genre as at the same time as holding up a grotesque mirror to contemporary american society i'd ever seen but when i finished watching the film and turned to my friends they had really wildly different ideas. They thought it was like the dumbest movie they'd ever seen. So, and most of the reviews that I've seen and read in 99% of, of publications say it's kind of dumb or that it tries to do a bit too much and kind of collapses under its own weight. I would highly recommend that you watch it and and, and decide for yourself because i think it's brilliant man and i I love a brilliant horror film it's up there for me with the ari asters you know those those kind of um films that have reinvented the genre of horror for me a little bit in recent years films like hereditary films like midsummer they are very interesting explorations of grief and trauma and family kind of relations this is a a good old-fashioned slasher gory social commentary horror which which you know back to the days of things like george romero night of the living dead day of the dead dawn of the dead etc um so yeah that's my wild card man uh, if you don't like horror you won't like it but if you do like horror you might love it how about that brilliant sounds horror sounds horrible <laughs> uh yeah it is it is it, it's a peculiar thing i think i i, I often uh, wonder about talking about horror because it seems like a much maligned uh, genre. Many people get immediately turned off by it, but for me, um, get turned on. I get very turned on, absolutely. Well, it, it it explores the desires and the anxieties that we have both individually and collectively uh, in a way that no other genre is able to. And I think for some people, that's just maybe a bit much. Uh, some people, for some people, it's the violence, the explicit violence. But but I think more often the disturbingness comes from exploring these issues which we would rather repress and not deal with. And I think that's unhealthy, man. I think we should open them up for discussion via not only horror films, but but you know the, the kind of books that we talk about. I mean, all of these films that I've chosen, and many of these books that you've chosen, are about grief about trauma about race. anxiety depression racism violence yep. you know so these are these are issues that we have to deal with in our lives um and and yeah i think the more we we talk about them and and the more stories we tell and narratives that represent these issues the better off we are Okay, so I think that is it for our uh, triumphant return to Shelf Absorbed. I hope you have enjoyed our reviews and I hope you go out and and read a few of the books and and watch a few of the films that we've suggested to you in our uh, very excited and impassioned way. 
It's been really nice to be back in the studio, Ben. I'm sorry about the couch. It's all right. Let's make it happen for the next time. Yeah? I'll make it happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, so, yeah, for the next podcast, more books, more films. Yeah, I think we'll just keep it contemporary, right, with what we're talking about. Otherwise, I get distracted and, and, and try and talk about, like, you know, uh, Japanese and Swedish films from 70 years ago that no one cares about except me. This is a, this is a stronger... F- a stronger format, I think. A stronger remit. So, on that note, uh, look out for our next amazing Shelf Absorbed podcast. But for now, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Bye.